comes to an interesting question. What is it really? It means can you avoid injuries? It means can you back off? When you get crushed, will you come back? I didn't like that part. <laughs> I think it's a lot of different things. It's not maybe a physical thing, but it's a mental thing. You know, when you see a lot of these athletes, a lot of you are here because you have that. You had that wherewithal. And maybe you got beat up because we all get beat up in this sport. It's part of it. It's like a rite of passage. It's just part of it. But it's okay. It's good. Bill Rogers. I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and you are listening to a special live recording of the Morning Shakeout podcast from Tracksmith's Trackhouse in Boston, Massachusetts. All right, special episode of the podcast this week. I am super excited to share a conversation that I had with the legendary Bill Rogers this past weekend in Boston as part of Boston Marathon Weekend at Tracksmith Trackhouse in Boston. Bill has been one of my pie-in-the-sky podcast guests since I started this show back in late 2017, and it was an absolute honor to sit down with him in the city where he really made his reputation as a runner. Over the course of this conversation, we covered a wide range of topics from the Boston Marathon, of course, but also his career as a runner and how he got back into running after college and what that process was like for him, DNFing at his first Boston Marathon and how he bounced back from that experience, what he thinks his biggest talent was as an athlete, how he trained for the marathon, how his own relationship with running evolved over the course of his lifetime, and a lot more. This episode is brought to you by Tracksmith. Tracksmith is a Boston-based running apparel brand that really celebrates the culture of the sport that we all love. They've been a longtime partner of the Morning Shakeout. Their apparel is incredible. We are recording this before the race, but I will have raced the Boston Marathon in a Tracksmith kit for the third time, and I really, really can't recommend their stuff enough. It's super high quality, it's really comfortable, and will be perpetually stylish. Check out tracksmith.com Mario for a collection of my favorite picks from their line, and you can use the code Mario15, that's Mario15, to save $15 off your first purchase of 75 bucks or more. This episode is also brought to you by Gooder. Gooder are my favorite sunglasses. They are super stylish. They are polarized so they'll protect your eyes. They don't bounce, they don't slip, and they are super affordable at 25 to 35 bucks a piece. My favorite colors are Mick and Keith's Midnight Ramble and a Ginger's Soul. My favorite style is the OGs, but they've got a wide range of styles and colors for you to choose from. Check out gooder.com slash Mario. That's G-O-O-D-R.com slash Mario and save 15% off your entire order. And as they like to say, your face will thank you. Okay, please enjoy this live conversation from this past weekend with marathon legend Bill Rogers. Bill, welcome so much to the show. Mario, great to join you this morning. Great to join all the runners here. And wishing you all smooth Boston, steady Boston. You know, it's going to be pretty good weather, I think. Pretty good. Yeah. And uh, it's just great to be here. You know, the feeling of what this race is all about and, you know, some of the things that are happening this weekend, you know, like with um, Roberta Gibbs' uh, sculpture unveiling, which happened a few days ago. And, um, you know, my brother Charlie and I went to that and because we knew Roberta way back. But she was a marathoner before I was, Mary. <laughs> how, many, how many of you out in the audience are running on Monday? That's a good number, yeah. So we've got an engaged audience here. Yeah. Maybe I can get Bill to give us some advice, because I'm running as well, and I'll take, oh, even yeah. though it's my fifth Boston, I'll take any tips that I can get. But this is a huge honor for me. When I started this podcast five years ago, 
you were in my list of like top three to five like pie in the sky guests, and I knew at some point that would that that it would happen, and I couldn't think of a better place for it to happen than live in front of an audience here at the track house. So thank you so much for just sure. taking the time to have this conversation with me. And where I want to start is, I mean, we're talking today on October 9th, and the Boston Marathon is on Monday, and that feels really weird to say because this is typically an yeah. April event. You have a huge yeah. history with the race. How does that feel to uh, you, um, being just in the city here for the first ever fall Boston Marathon? Very upsetting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very, very. It feels like I'm in Alice in Wonderland world. I feel like the world's upside down. But this is what COVID did to us. And so, so to me, it's like we have to fight COVID. You know, every step we t that we can take. You know, last year when there were no racing, you know, I go out for my runs and have my mask and see someone coming along and put your mask up and do all that. So weird. We've never done this before. You know, it's been a hundred years since this virus hit us way back. You know, and and I read a book about the. The, the, the tragedy of the virus hitting the U.S. and the world in 1917, 1918, you know, so I was like, well, this isn't going to happen again. It can't, but maybe it could, and it did, you know, but thank God the, these brilliant scientists, I mean, these people are just, they're just true heroes, you know, and for the whole world, and, but, you know, it, it took everything down, it took uh, all of us down, and, uh, and, um, so, so, so this is like a rebirth type thing. We're all going through this, you know, and and and, and that's what I think. Marathoning, marathoning always has this value, this power. It's, it's global. It's all over the world. This sport, and that's what I love, you know. And I, I was very lucky when I was younger, you know. And uh, after after I was able to win Boston, then I started getting invited to other races, you know. But my first Boston was terrible. I dropped out. <laughs> It was a hot day, and I didn't really, I didn't know how to pace myself. You know, today there's the knowledge of training. You can get the knowledge of training. There's so many good coaches today, and through your podcast and everything, Mario, I've read your podcast before and all this information. But I'm not too good with technology, you know. So, so, but I think we all learn from each other. But here in Boston, I was very lucky um, when I moved here in about 1971. I quit running because for me, running was running with your teammates. You know, your high school, college, cross-country, track, teammates. And I said, I'm done with that. You know, I'm, I'm just done with it, I guess, you know. And, um, but then I was living with my old high school mile teammate, Jason Keogh. We lived right near the Boston Marathon finish line, half a mile away. I said, we'll go over and watch the marathon. We had our motorcycles. I had my cigarettes, you know. We all thought we were from Easy Rider or something, you know. <laughs> of course, we weren't. <laughs> But to see the Boston Marathon, and my, my college roommate had won Boston. But this was Ambie Burfoot. This is a really quiet, unassuming guy who is very internal. You know, his strength was internal, you know, sort of. And so he didn't even have his medal. He didn't even wear his medal back to college. And so I didn't understand the marathon. To really have a feeling for the marathon, I think you have to see it. You have to see the marathon. This is incredible. And then I saw some of the people I ran against in college. And, and that, and I saw Jeff Galloway out there, John Vitale from the University of Connecticut. And um, so, so, so we all motivate each other. And that's why running keeps growing and growing. And I think it's going to keep growing, you know. And, and I'm sure you feel the same way, Mario. You were talking, we were talking earlier about your moving to California and everything. And I try to do the same thing. We want the easy weather. <laughs> Bringing it back to, to Boston and being here right now in October, I mean, the last two editions of this race, the first one, 2020, was canceled altogether. 2021 is postponed to now. When those April dates passed, did you feel a bit of sadness not having the marathon happening on Patriots Day and not being in the city for of race course. weekend? Of course. You know, I, 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 uh, you know, I work with the BAA a little bit and try to do some virtual stuff and Zooms and everything. And I did that with other races. And, but, but I don't know. To me, it's like you have to be here. It's different, you know. And uh, there's nothing you – we tried to kind of do what we could, you know. And, and, and everyone played their, did their part. We – 
Uh, Shakespeare said, we're all actors on that stage, whatever. This is the marathon stage. <laughs> you know? And uh, it was just tough. It was brutal. And took down the Boston Marathon. You know, and uh, very sad. To me, the Boston Marathon is not just a race. It has these powerful meanings. It's about our health and, 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 and how we live and all these things, you know, that you write about and, and that we know so much more than from the days of Bobby Gibb, who was alone, but said, you know, women should be out there too. And, and, or Clarence Tamar, who ran it back in 1912, you know, and the doctors told him, oh, you shouldn't run anymore, you got a heart murmur. <laughs> of course, they were wrong. <laughs> Came back and he won seven Bostons, you know. But I, I like the history of our sport and love meeting the runners from all over. And uh, it's been a, a great opportunity, you know, for me to travel and everything. But, but I do like, I like Tracksmith. It's, it's got a unique feeling to it. It's, it's, it's not a mega store and everything. There are some mega stores, but I like the feel to it. I see a lot of people. I see Tommy Leonard up there. Tommy Leonard started the Falmouth Road Race on Cape Cod. He was a Boston marathoner and everything. And, and uh, actually, um, kind of a, lived, grew up in an orphanage as a young kid. And DeMar also was kind of like that. His mom couldn't take care of him, and he grew up on an island in Boston Harbor. It's unbelievable. But I see Bobby Hodge, who is a mutual friend, and eight-time winner of the um, Mount Washington Road Race, and he was a real hill runner. But Boston, we all find something in Boston that we love, you know, but it beat me up, too. I dropped out three times here. Be careful. Because <laughs> the crowds, they know what you're doing. They know what you're doing because they've been watching the race so long. And they hate you to drop out here in Boston. <laughs> you have to run and hide behind the crowds, you know. <laughs> no, I'm really, they'll try to push you back in. Well, they, they can also be the reason for you maybe dropping out because they get you so excited. You go out too fast. And then, I mean, speaking for myself, you end up in a hole 16 miles into the race. And then you got to find a way out of it. <laughs> Absolutely But true. they keep you going. Yeah, they keep you going and a lot of power to that. I mean, there is a connection. And I think a lot of people who watched the race over the years became marathoners, became runners. There's some great books. I read one this year about this guy. He, he, he watched the race for like 25 years. And then I think he turned 40 or 50. I can't remember which. He was older. Him and two buddies said, should we do it? They started training together. You need one friend to get out the door. But on your own, I think, do you think so, Mario? Oh, it makes the biggest difference in the world. I wouldn't have had the training cycle that I had for this race if it weren't for my friends and training partners. It would have been a lot tougher doing it alone. This is not... The loneliness of the long-distance runner is sort of true. You know, that book and everything, a great story, but... I think but, there's a time and a place for it. It depends yes. on where you are in your life and maybe in your yeah. training cycle. And That's true. I love those lonely miles, but I really thrive when I'm around other people, yeah. as I think most of us do. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think in general... I, I, I think we're still in a learning curve by the general sports media about our sport. You know, they're, they're seeing how the sport has grown over the last 30 years or so and, and, and what's happening, you know, the women, how they have contributed. And that was so hidden for so long, you know. Well, let's talk about that because when you were in your heyday racing the Boston Marathon in the late 70s, early, mid 80s, it was a much smaller race. It was a racer's race. There weren't charity runners as there are now. There weren't people who just aspired to run Boston for the sake of, of running Boston. It was very much the, you know, the, the dedicated amateur runner. This is their, was their Olympics, still is their Olympics, yeah. but it's grown a lot. I mean, the yeah. numbers have gone up. There's a lot more charity runners here. It's a much bigger spectacle than it ever yeah. was. I mean, you've been able to witness this over the yeah. last few decades. How do you feel about the event itself and just how it's grown and matured over the last, say, 30, 40 years? You know, I love seeing the sport grow. I want everyone in the whole world to be a runner because then we'll get world peace, you know? And I'm a big, big fan and supporter of that. And so is Roberta Gibb, by the way, you know? And, um, but I think it breaks down all the barriers that we, that we always kind of create. They're, they're, they're all there and we all have some in, in us. But I think this sport is one of the great, 
It's a real leveler. <laughs> it can knock us all back, you know? And you find out so much about yourself, you know? And I guess in certain ways. But I loved, you know, I, I, you know when I started with 73, I got to know Jackie Hansen, who was one of the women who helped put together the effort along with Catherine Switzer and um, Nina Kusick and some other people whose names aren't even well known who tried to work with USA Track and Field and the International Olympic Committee to have a women's Olympic marathon, you know, which of course John Bonnet Samuelson took the win. But all the guy runners all wanted women to be out there, but we had we didn't have any power. We 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 you know, this sport was kind of I don't know. It was backwards in lots so many ways, but the science of exercise has brought new life to and opportunities to everybody. And and that's what's happened. But there were always in every country, I think it's Adrian Beams in Australia, she was out there, you know, every country around the world there was one or two or some women that were trying to get out there and and but just culturally a, a challenge and everything. How do you go against what everyone thinks you should do. You know, tough, tough thing. But Roberta, she is a character, but you've got to check out her sculpture. It's really, I think they're going to put it in probably this coming April. It'll be at the start line. You know, but um, I know Patty Dillon, Patty Dillon Catalano um, from the late 70s. Um, and she was a great, she's Native American, half Native American, and, and um, very interesting. Uh, uh, person, you know, in her life, and Dan Dillon, her husband, and so, so it's, you, we, you, we all meet each other in this sport. It's not a sport where you have the stadium, the wall. There's no walls there, and so I think that's why this is such a great sport, you know? Yeah, I think that's a, a great metaphor as well, because without those walls, anyone can come in, and I, I think it's up to us as ambassadors of the sport to welcome those people. And, you know, and also the fundraising, the fundraising, Kirikides, the Greek runner, actually did do fundraising in, I think, 46. I think he beat Johnny Kelly in Boston. And after Greece was hurt, crushed World War II, made a comeback, you know, they came back and uh, did fundraising in the U.S. And, but then, I remember, when I won in 75, I was contacted by the, by the MS Society. So it was a very, very hidden sort of thing. People would write... They wrote letters to Will Cloney, the race director, and said, we want to raise money as we run. And so Will Cloney and I, we worked together, and so we would get letters from people saying, oh, I rose, raised 700 bucks. So, but no one knew too much about it then, you know? But I think it's come along and come along, and, because sometimes you need a way to get into it. How do you get into the sport? Most people are never have an opportunity to get into a sport. When you think of it, your high school days, were you chosen for a sport? Baseball, no, basketball, football. <laughs> it's very tricky, you know. And I was very lucky when I was in high school to, um, we had the gym class mile. And, and my brother Charlie and our best friend, they were starting cross country for guys, but there were no, there were no girls team. That was 63 to 66, you know, it's just the way, it was very backwards. But we had a good coach. He didn't push us hard and... Um, we just have fun with running. If you have fun with running, you're going to stay with it. You have to find what, what you want. And so you have done it. You're all here, you know. So, so now you're passing the torch, so to speak, you know, to the other runners, you know. And it's just, I think that's it, passing the torch type thing. Going back to your first Boston as an athlete, you mentioned a little while ago how you dropped out. You didn't finish that race. What did you crushed. learn from that experience? I was crushed. <laughs> I learned that... How old were you? I, I was 25. 25 years old. And, and I had run with Amy Burford in a 30-kilometer race. In those days, in 73, you could qualify with a 30K or a 10-mile or something like that. And I came in third place in that race. I was making my comeback to running. You know, I joined the Boston Y. I started to work out and run. And, um, but I didn't know how to pace myself. Coming down the big hill... And I didn't understand, no water on the course. That was the problem, Mario. And I, I, was it a warm day? It was a warm day. Probably 78 degrees, something like that. Okay. By 10 miles, I hit the wall, and suddenly, yeah, I started to really feel it. And, and um, Amby had told me beforehand, take it easy, you know. So I made it to the top of heartbreak. And I lived about 
two or three miles away, and I just walked home, you know? And, and um, then I, I, I quit running for about three months, tried to move to California like you did, because I figure I need to train where it's warm. You know, if you train where it's warm, then you'll be used to the heat, you know? And, uh, but I didn't know anyone in California. No job, not much money, my wife and I. And um, so, but it was a great way to see the country. <laughs> drive across the country, and that was fantastic, fantastic. When you came back from that cross-country trip, coming off the disappointment of your first Boston DNF, you obviously stuck with the sport. What adjustments did you make to your training or just your mindset or your approach as you worked your way toward being one of the best marathoners in the country and then the world? You know, what happened was I... I got back to running a little bit, moved back to Massachusetts. We moved to Massachusetts and um, moved to Jamaica Plain area, about two miles from here. And um, I ran for the BAA my first year, but there weren't too many runners. Didn't have a car, so it's hard to go to races, you know. So a new track club is being formed, the Greater Boston Track Club here in Boston. Coach Billy Squires, he was a miler for Notre Dame years ago, very good miler and everything. And... Um, and, 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 and the coach at Boston College, Jack McDonald, and Bob Seventy, interesting guy, um, formed the Greater Boston Track Club. And about, about 30 or 40 f- people who didn't want to quit running, we wanted to get, keep going, joined this group, you know? And, and we, people like Bob Hodge and Vinnie Fleming and um, Greg Meyer, Pete Fissinger, Sadly, not too many women because it was still in the early days, women coming into the sport. Um, there were some women runners, um, but, um, but Squires, he knew, he was a track guy, so he helped us integrate our track training. We could go to the Boston College track because Jack McDonald was a coach there. That's how we could run on a track and learn to pace yourself. Everything is, that's the key, and, and that's, that's a part of your puzzle, you know how to add different paces to your training, just like the Kenyans do and the Finns did, you know, because everything was throwing in surges, you know, and I didn't understand that, but I learned that. And Cut Squires, as you know, is a great coach. He's one of our, I think our country's great coaches, just like Meb's coach is one of the great coaches. Um, Dina Castor's coach of What's that gentleman out in... Uh, Joe V. Hill. Uh, Joe V. Hill. Years ago. Yeah. I never met him, but I read Dina's book. It's a great book. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. For me, running, I was, never, I was never really a person who was too good at anything else. You know, so, so running... I did pretty good in high school cross country. I wasn't a Craig version. I wasn't one of these national level people, but I did pretty good. And I ran together with Ambie and Jeff Galloway in college. And these guys, I learned so much from them. So we all learn from each other. It's totally true. So the information that you pass on, you know, uh, that's why the sport is booming. But also, I I take my hat off to all these people as we all may face health issues at one point. You never know, and I certainly did about 10 years ago. And, um, but I'm always a supporter of the fundraising side of the sport and um, to see that grow and, 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 and to get the word out what our sport, the health factor. You know what I mean? Because a lot of people struggling. They're never going to run, you know, or never get started in, in a sport like this, you know. What was that first spark of inspiration for you after college, once you got back into running, that let you know you could be good at this? Well, in, um, in 74, my second Boston, I moved up to 14th place. But for, for about 15 or 18 miles, I was in fourth place. You know, I was, I was trying to compete better. You know, Neil Cusack from Ireland won that day, and he was a national cross-country champion. But I didn't know these guys. I'm just tried to hang with him. I was running with a buddy, a guy I knew um, from University of Connecticut. And on Heartbreak Hill, I got cramps on the side of the road. And my friend, John Vitale, who was a rival in college, but we knew each other. He said, Bill, come on, get back in, you know. And I spent a few minutes on the side of the road. I jumped back in. But I got under two hours and 20 minutes. So every time you make a breakthrough, and it just comes to all of us, but it could take some months and that I didn't really understand then, you know, I 
you know, we don't, and if you read Dina's book too, you can see how she progressed, you know, and she was a great talent. Talent is an interesting question. What is it really? It means can you avoid injuries? It means can you back off? You know, and when you get crushed, will you come back? I didn't like that part. <laughs> I think it's a lot of different things. But Dina ultimately found that, you know, and I think that's how she won an Olympic silver medal. It's not maybe a physical thing, but it's a mental thing. You know, when you see a lot of these athletes, a lot of them, a lot of you are here because you have that, you had that wherewithal. And maybe you got beat up, because we all get beat up in this sport. It's part of it. It's like a rite of passage. It's just part of it. But it's okay, it's good. I want to talk about talent a little more, because as you just alluded to, it can take a lot of different forms, depending on, on who you are yes. and where you are in your athletic journey. What was your biggest talent, you think, as an athlete? Um... I think that, um, I don't really know. I think that, um, you know, I, I, I think I was more a 15-miler than a marathoner. You know, I liked it, but it, none of us really liked the marathon. <laughs> Is there anyone here who likes it? Well, you might, you might like it. You like it if you have a good day. <laughs> we like it then. And it's, but it's tough. It's hard to get those good days, to put them together. I've got a friend, he's doing his 25th Boston, but he's a very wired dude. He's 61 years old. He, he just had a hernia thing happen about three weeks ago. So, and he's a triathlete type and all, but he's going to do it, you know. But I'm telling him his name is Zeus. Hey, Zeus, you know. I said, Zeus, you've got to back off. Do Jeff Galloway's run. You've got to get there. You've got to get there. Don't go out, you know. You're, so you always got to assess yourself. And it's hard to do uh, because we are, you know, we're competitive. There's com the camaraderie side and the comp competitive side, I think. But your talent, I think for me, is that I just, I loved running. You know, I, I love the nuts and bolts of it. Like this morning, to go out on the Charles River, and you see all the people coming along from different countries and, and, and wearing their shirts and, and um, all the people out there, they're walking their dogs, they're running with their dogs. This is, we live the best lives possible, I think. I don't know. I, I just think no one lives as good as, as runners do, even though we, um, you know, the crazy thing about the days of DeMar and even Kelly was, I don't think the media really understood the sport. Now more of them do. A lot of them are runners. You know what I mean? And, and so the sport, because so many people are out there over the last 30 years, you changed the sport, you know, really. Because when people see you, once I was at a clinic, um, I think it was Joan Benoit Samuelson said some, something like, um, we all inspire each other. And when you're out there running, people see you. And that's why I think Boston grew, you know, and all, so old, 1897. So, so I think that's totally true. Absolutely true, you know. Because not everyone can get out there and take part. Can you get out there with Tiger Woods and play golf or Phil Mickelson or something or play basketball with the great basketball players? This sport, the door is open. It's your willpower and your, your luck. There is luck if you find it. Because I, one thing I always say, Mario, and I wonder what you think, what you think. The greatest athletes are sitting at home because they never got a chance to be in a sport. Most people are, don't do any activity, no sport. They never had a chance, never had a chance, you know? So, we're lucky. We're the lucky ones, you know. Sometimes we don't feel that way, though. <laughs> I mean, I think, that's, I think that's absolutely true. And, I mean, I think it goes for kids who are sitting at home, maybe playing video games, who have just never been introduced to these opportunities that they could take advantage of and see what's possible for themselves. But I even see it in athletes that I coach. I've got a number of master's athletes who didn't find running until they got into their 40s and 50s. Yeah. And they're running times that many 20-year-olds yes. would be very jealous of. And you yes. wonder, what would have happened to these folks if they had found running in their teens? Like, someone could have been the next Bill Rogers, for example. <laughs> I mean, if, seriously. I mean, you've been running since high school. So it's like yeah. if they had had that opportunity yeah. and they'd stuck with oh, it. Absolutely um, true. They could have been, oh, you know, potentially a world beater, but who knows? Oh. I mean, if their life hadn't played out the way that it had, they may not have found running later in life, because oftentimes they do for 
health reasons, for social reasons, um, to combat something else that they've got going on. So, I mean, it's an interesting thing to think about and yes. discuss. Yes. How do we get more people out there? Everyone plays a role, you know. But I also think, I also, I, I totally think our doctors are leaders. They're our leaders. We need to have a healthcare system that shifts gears and recognizes this. You know, we got to recognize it because millions and millions and millions of people would benefit. And that's true all over the world, but that's why I think our sport is global. It, I think it can be bigger and better. You know, you know sometimes I, you know, I, I miss some amazing stories. I've met people who lost 100 pounds through running. It's running with this big tall guy. And we were, this is like 15 years ago. I was a little quicker. This big tall guy, we're running seven something pace or whatever. And he told me, you know, I lost 100 pounds last. This guy is, it's an incredible story, you know. Then I met a woman at a race and she ate lung removed. And she's running a half marathon or marathon. I'm an ex-smoker. Are there any other ex-smokers here? That is great. I love ex-smokers. Because, you know, I, we're able to quit with running. But most people don't have that. You know what I'm saying to you. Then it's, because that's, that's a drug. That's powerful stuff. You know, I was running on the Charles River last year. I don't know what I was doing here in Boston, but I, was, I love to run on the Charles. You know, it's beautiful. And, and um, I come along, and I'm, I always go over by the river on the grass, and there's a young guy sitting there, and sure enough, he has a needle, you know, and I ran by him, and then I, 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 I got to go back. So I just walked back to him. He's like 22 years old or something, you know. I was kind of like that a little myself, but I'm not going to take any trucks. Maybe a little marijuana or something, but, <laughs> but, <laughs> but he was with a needle. And I just came back and I said, I said, this is better. This is better. You know, and, and I know there is a big group here in Boston that runs and trying to beat um, drug addiction. You know, tough stuff because it's all up here, you know. And so, so when, when you're out there, those people see you. You know, that's what Joan said. And I, I, it's totally true. I want to come back to talents. I've talked to a lot of your contemporaries and former competitors over the years. And, I mean, you're a pretty affable guy when you're not on a race course. I mean, you'll talk to anyone. Um, you'll spend a lot of time with them. You know, you've got a very just, like, energetic and joyful way about you. But everyone that I've talked to who's ever raced against you said Bill was a different person when he was on the race course. And I feel like that might have been one of your talents. Like, you could flip a switch, seemingly, once the gun went off. Do you feel that way? Did you turn into a different person when you were competing in some way? I think we all are. I think we all are. You know, and, um, you know, running was the one thing that I, that I found I could do pretty well at some points. You know, I got crushed a lot. I dropped out of eight marathons, too. You know, I had some good races, but, but we're very picky. We're very, as runners, we're, we demand a lot of ourselves. I think that's part of it. But... Um, I just met so many great people in the sport. I, I love what the sport stands for, everywhere. And um, I met Abdi, Abdirman out there this morning, you know. Five Olympic teams? My jaw dropped. He was running with a Karui, the Kenyan guy, who's like, he runs like, you know, he's got this stride, you know. But I can just tell up here, how, I can tell how he thinks, you know. But, but I think... Um, I, I don't know. Sometimes it depends. Sometimes I've been in races. I was racing Frank Shorter years ago. This is back in 1975. It's the Wayback Machine. And Frank was the guy we were all trying to beat or catch up to, you know. He was an Olympic gold medalist and um, changed the sport forever. And we're good friends and everything. But I still wanted to beat him or catch him or compete with him. And, and, and I did do this with him down in a race in Virginia. And we ran the whole way. I caught up to him. And Frank is a very strategic runner. He's a strategy guy. But I caught up to him finally, and, and I said, Frank, let's tie. And if, <laughs> he said, no. He said, he said, he, and well, he didn't say no. He just didn't answer me. <laughs> it was a big, long uphill finish. But in the end, he said, okay. So we tied, but they gave the win to me. He wasn't happy. 
<laughs> he wasn't happy, you know, but it's just, it's just, it's just our sport. Then once I was running with Alberto, Alberto Salazar, who I knew when he was a high school kid here in Massachusetts, great talent. Called him the rookie, didn't you? Yeah, the rookie, because he was just 16 years old and always demanded a lot of himself. His home life was very tricky. And, um, but, um, but I was running with him. I hadn't seen him in a few years. And we're running here in Boston, a race that was called the Freedom Trail. Bobby Hodge ran it, Greg Meyer, Randy Thomas, all the, Jerome Drayton from Canada, uh, Mary Slaney, you know, who is an American track star and everything, she came in and ran it. And um, it was a great race. It only lasted about five years, and then the city shut it down. But I, I got, I was duking it out there with Alberto, and then he got away from me. The lead truck, Mario, at about the seven-mile mark of this race, takes him off the course. I saw him take the right-hand turn, we're supposed to go left, you know. And I, I, I yelled to him, I said, Alberto, you know, he comes back. But Alberto was so competitive. He came back, and then I said to him as we got near the finish, I said, Alberto, you want to tie? Because I felt so happy to catch up to him. Catch up to him, you know. And, and he turned to me and he said, do what you have to do to win. <laughs> it was just hilarious because, you know, we're friends forever no matter what. But, but he wanted to win. He was just in his youth. He was in his youth and he, he was driving. He was trying to be one of the best in the world. Very, very tricky thing, you know. And um, I think he, he trained as hard as the most competitive Kenyans or Meb or anyone. He put himself through a lot and everything. Ran into some trouble lately and everything, and I feel really bad about it, and I hope he can work his way out of it. He's a, but... I don't know, our sport can be very complex in some ways. You know what I mean. What motivated you when you were at the height of your competitive career? Was it to try to win races, beat other people, or get the most out of yourself, or something else altogether? No, I, we were just kids. We were 15 years old, running on our grass track and everything, running cross-country uh, in Connecticut. And, but, you know, I, I had done well. And I was the fastest kid on the team, so to speak, running the two-mile. We, we didn't run 5K, we ran the two-mile. And, um, and so when I went to a competing team, you know, we didn't have the internet then, but my coach would have a printout. And so if I went to Middletown, Connecticut, I knew I would be racing Dave Parmalee. Or if I went to Norwich Free Academy, I'd be racing against Tim Smith, one of Ambie Burfoot's friends and all. And so so I, I knew who I was racing against. And um, sometimes uh, you, you, you do good and sometimes you get crushed. You know, I won the state Class A cross-country my senior year. But at the state open, I got crushed. I, I didn't know how to pace myself a lot. Pacing is everything. And taking your time. If you do that, you always succeed. But I was a little too crazed, you know. But... Um, but how would you think about that when you were marathoning? I mean, you didn't have GPS yeah. watches back then. There weren't even no. mile markers on the course. No. So when you were racing no. Boston, for example, or New York, would you it's think actually about kind of fun that way? Would you think about pacing yourself, or would you say, "Hey, I'm going to run a certain effort to I don't know mile 16, then I'm going to take off, or I'm going to try to hammer guys early"? Like, how you know, did you think about I, that from a competitive standpoint? I call it running within yourself, you know, up here, and you're just going around. You're watching. It's mainly watching your competition. Who are you racing against? I was running against my friend Tom Fleming. You know, Frank came in and ran 78. Um, Toshihiko Seiko was a great, we were rivals, you know, in a race in Japan. He came to Boston. He was, he was very, very smart runner, very smart and very well-trained. He didn't have too many errors in his career, you know. Um, so you would look for someone you could run with, you know, and always tuck in behind and draft. If you watch the top runners, they always draft. And one story I heard once was some coach told his runners, always wait for 30K. You know, the top Kenyans, Ethiopians, whoever's there, Americans, whoever they're there, if they're in, the, can compete at that level and everything, you save energy and psychologically. You know, and I was talking to um, uh, Rick Rojas last night, who went to Harvard here, a really smart guy, and I remember seeing him on the Charles River. And uh, years and years ago, and now his daughter, Nell, is running Boston and kind of making a breakthrough. I think she, I kind of sense this.
Maybe I'm wrong, you know, because it's so competitive today. You know, who are the runners who are really ready who are here? Because sometimes the runners are here, but there's a money factor, you know, and sometimes the runners are really, really not ready. The professional runners are the exact same deal, no matter who you are. Some of them get crushed. Some of them get, look at, um, oh, was it Scott Fauble who had that? Did he have Haglin surgery? One of the, our top Americans had Haglin surgery. No, it was Riley. Riley. And he A was lot of folks out. have had Haglin surgery over the last few years. Hard to keep track. Galen Rupp has. Gwen Jorgensen has. Rupp. I think Jake Riley did a couple years ago before he made the Olympic team, obviously. But yeah. So, so when you take a look at it, if you have a good physical therapist, they're worth their weight in gold. <laughs> and, and most of the top runners do. But a lot of them are too driven. You know, they're so driven. I wasn't that driven. Frank was a little like that. Mary Slaney was like that. I just don't have that driving me to push myself into the ground. I'll push myself till I have to drop out, but, but, but not to, you know. So, so I think I was lucky that way. I don't want to have surgery, you know. And, and, and I think if you run on grass and you take your time and do cross-training... I don't know. It's like we're always learning. So I learned from the older runners that are out there, and some of them are just incredible. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're doing so well. And you know, every race I go to, I'm trying to win my age group. I can't win my age group. <laughs> you know, these guys are seven years old, and they're like men of steel or something. And the women are the same. So, so we see all this happening. It's the first time, I think, really. There were a few runners. There was Kelly. Damar, one Boston age 41, but you know what I'm saying. It's different. When I was coming up in the sport in high school and learning about its history, I mean, having grown up in this area, you were one of the first people that I ever learned about. I mean, everyone hears about Boston Billy when you're growing up in Massachusetts. And there was this quote that was attributed to you. I don't know if you actually said it or not. You can tell me if it's true. But I wrote it down on a piece of paper, and I had it on my wall in high school. And it said, to win a race, you have to go a little berserk. And I've always loved that quote. So it's, to win a race, you have to go a little berserk. That's totally true. What did you mean by that? I meant that you have to be, there's a little bit of gambler in all of us, and that's why we're here, partly. You're in Boston, you know, and nitty-gritty race, and, and you're competitive, and, and, and all that. Um, and and, and if, if you are like that, you are going to get beaten and have bad days, you know. So, but But you do kind of... You know, sometimes I remember there's this great Australian coach, Percy Cerruti, mm-hmm. and uh, he, uh, he tried to talk to us like, you know, we're animals. We are animals, you know? And, and he said, you know, when you're running, neigh like a horse. Or, and so when I was in a race, sometimes I'd be running against Benji Durden or Ron Tab, some of the runners from my era, and they were really pushing me into the ground, and I was mad at them. I, w- I would yell. You know? Yeah, I heard you used to snarl during races. Well, I would yell because a way, way to shake yourself up and maybe make a surge. I don't know. I was just winging it. Were you playing mind really? games with some of your competitors when um, you did that? I just think the sport Like, is, here's this guy going crazy, just like yelling, like, I got to get away Benji from Benji was a tough, 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 nitty-gritty runner. He's from Atlanta. Hard place to train. The heat... Hilly. If you live in a hot weather environment, you're from Florida, you know, you're tr- you are the toughest athletes on the planet, <laughs> I really think. it. I don't think it's the Kenyans or the Ethiopians. They have perfect weather. It's the runners who live in tough weather. Because if you have the wherewithal and everything to keep going and... But, I mean, you had that here in New England. I mean, you tried to move to California because it was nice and yeah. warm, and it backfired on you. And then you came back here, and having grown up here myself, I can say the winters are miserable. It's hard to train, especially for Boston. Yeah, but in, you can do it. In April. You I, exactly. You could do it. But, I mean, that had to do something for you. I think it probably helped carve you as a marathoner. I think it, it's tricky, but there's also the indoor tracks. Big college city all over. Tufts University, we ran there, Boston College. I got kicked off all the tracks. We all did. <laughs> We used to bring a bottle of booze in to someone who was watching the tracks to become friends. <laughs> but, but actually, I think cool weather. You know, the Kenyans, Ethiopians, training early morning when it's cool. When it's cool. 
in Florida, the same thing, you know? And so, so I wait now, you know, living in here, Mario, I'll wait till like 11 a.m. until it's 34 degrees instead of 17 because it's easier on your body. Your rec everything is recovery. And, um, but, uh, I know, I think it's a great place to train um, here in New England. Uh, uh, a lot of top runners have come from New England. Uh, now it's uh, all changing, but I don't know. It's, it's a tricky thing. We have a captive audience here. Most everyone in this room is racing on Monday, including myself. Give us some advice. How did you think about racing the Boston course? When it went well for you, how did you spread yourself out over that 26.2-mile route from Hopkinton to Boston? You know, once I really had gotten more ready, my third year running Boston, then I knew the course. We were lucky we lived here. Wherever you live, if you live in Miami, you learn the Miami course. Dallas, Texas, you learn, you know, around the lake. You know, Houston, another great marathon, LA. They're all great races. You know, we have a lot of great races, and they all have their challenges. You know, Boston, of course, way downhill, and and that nailed me two years in a row. But my third year, I if you watch it and you watch yourself, if you wait till the hills, you know, you get to the Newton Hills. If you wait till then, you are going to have a great race. But it's hard to do. It really is hard to do because it's so exciting and overwhelming and people are screaming and yelling and cheering you on. You know, we're feeling our Cheerios. Sometimes you're getting a really good day and you feel it and then it's good. You know, but, but, but I think it's always smart and everyone says this to wait, you know. But I think that's Meb when he won here in 14. It wasn't his first time. Everyone takes a while to get used to Boston. If it's your first time, you know, run with someone who's run it before because that can help you so much. You know, my first marathon, I only finished after my failure here in 73 because Tom Dedarian, who wrote the history of the Boston Marathon. Yeah, literally wrote the book on the Boston Marathon. He wrote the book. Actually, I went to a little rinky-dink marathon with him that doesn't even exist, and, and we ran together. So if you can run, if you're leery of the race, you know, if you can run with someone at the pace you know you can do, you know, Boston's a great course. I think it's the best course in the world. You know, if you get the weather, you can really move, you know, you can really move. If you get a tailwind, it's about once every 10 years. <laughs> it's, a, it's a long wait, but, but I had one here in 75, and, and, and it was a great break, you know. How did you think about what I call the middle section of the course, even though it comes later, which is the hills, from 17 to 21? Would you try and make moves there? Would you just try to maintain your effort, knowing that you had downhill from yep. BC to the finish? Like, I'd love um, to know how you thought about it. You know, everything is lying low in the beginning. You're conserving energy, getting your drinks if you can. And I was watching my friend Tom, because he was a real fast starter. Big, strong guy, high mileage guy. Very, very good competitor and super nice guy, you know. And um, so I try to run together and run smart. But um, my third year, I was in shape. I had, I had just run World Cross Country. I took a bronze medal World Cross Country. I beat Frank Shorter. I asked Jeff Galloway, because we were all poor in those days, <laughs> the way it was. And uh, I said, Jeff, I'm racing Boston, and I need some good racing shoes. And uh, so he talked to Steve Prefontaine. I never met, met Pre, but I knew who he was. And he, he sent me the shoes, that, and I was able to win the race in those shoes, you know. Did so you I used had, to have those shoes in your old store? Yeah, we had the shoes. I remember you know. those. They looked like track flats. Yeah, they were very light, great racing shoe. Your shoes are key. And so tough to find the ones that work for you. And I still struggle with that issue, but those shoes work for me. And then maybe it was also like a letter from Pre. You know, I beat Frank, you know, we became arch rivals, you know, but always I respect him. Two Olympic medals. This guy was unreal. He was unreal. He had a great mind for racing that, that was just off the charts. <laughs> he was like Kipchoge, you know, he was like Kipchoge, same um, mind. So back to the hills, you mentioned how you battled with Tom through that area. Yes. How did you think about that section of the I love course? the downhills. I, I love the downhills. I wasn't so good at the uphills. You know, a lot of runners hammer me in the uphills. but um, You would play to your strengths? Yeah, I was better on the downhills, and this is a downhill course. 
and we all lived here. We our coach, we all trained in the course. So that was an advantage, you know. And <coughs> we'd go to Heartbreak Hill and do repeats and Heartbreak. And I couldn't stay with someone like Greg Meyer. Greg Meyer, University of Michigan, was like a four-minute miler. I ran 418 in college. You know, I was a solid miler, but this guy can really motor. Uh, shorter was about 402. Same with Salazar, you know, for his PR. You know, some real, real combination of physical and mental talent, you know. But there's some great downhills. So coming down out of Wellesley, that's fantastic. That's a free ride. Run under control, but it's all nice. It's a long, beautiful downhill. You've got a nice long recovery at the bottom, and then a steady, moderate uphill. You get to the uphill, and then it goes down a little more. So you, you always got downhill. Be careful on your uphills. Run how you feel. Careful. You can really fly in the downhills. Once you get over heartbreak, it's all downhill to the finish. It is. It's great. And the crowds are on your side. If you've never done Boston, you will be mind-boggled. Isn't it true, Mario? Oh, it's incredible. I mean, best fans in the world. I'm biased, but I think they really are the best fans in the world. It's intense. (laughs) It's intense. (laughs) I'd love to talk about training a little bit. You were a high-mileage guy most of your career, as many of your contemporaries were. You're best known for your exploits in the marathon, but you raced a lot. I mean, you would race like 50 times a year, and you would race from the mile all the way on up to the marathon, (laughs) and and everything in between. How did you think about your training? Did you train specifically for the marathon and make adjustments when you were prepping for Boston, or did you like kind of train a certain way and aim to have range Um, across a wide variety of distances? I used the shorter distance races. For me, I knew I didn't have fast twitch muscle fibers. I got out kicked a lot in high school or college, and I wasn't quick. I wasn't a Greg Meyer. Greg Meyer has fast twitch muscle fibers, you know, and um, Kipchoge does too. He ran a phenomenal 5,000 meter. He's got, he's the whole package, so to speak. But, um, but for me, I, I loved the marathon. I loved how you could float, kind of, and you could pursue this event, and you had a chance. You have a chance. If you're slower, you know, and this is the marathon. So, so, and all of us train pretty high mileage. You know, Dick Mahoney, he was a mailman. He still ran 120 miles a week, 110 miles a week. So Coach Squires, we would add a bit of speed, but we didn't go crazy with the speed. Everything is avoiding injuries, you know, and we did have a chance to go to some of the indoor tracks and everything. But I would use races like the, the Cherry Blossom 10 Mile, two weeks before Boston. That's a great tune-up, nice and flat, and you, you run harder. Then when you get to Boston, it feels slow. It's a slower pace, you know? So everything is, so that, quicker efforts, find your quicker efforts and, and use those. You don't have to go crazy, you know? Um, but it means so much. It helps you so much because it helps you here, mentally too. Do you think top runners today should race more than they do? I mean, you would well, race an excessive amount. Um, yeah. and I feel like a lot of top athletes now, they run maybe two big marathons a year, maybe a tune-up on yeah. the way up to that. It's amazing. Big difference. Because we were trying to make a living. You know, we get paid 50 bucks, 100 bucks. We were, the rules were you could be paid a certain amount per day when we went to races. like. So like some a, of it was out of necessity. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you get what's called a per diem, 35 bucks a day. But sometimes the rules were being bent, and that was always true going back 100 years, you know, to the Finns and to Jim Thorpe and to everybody, and sometimes people got caught, and it's terrible, terribly backward system. But so we, a lot of us over-raced, you know, three or four marathons a year. I think today, I think it's almost gone to the other extreme. Right. And the top runners, but I think the science of exercise is part of that. And they know what they're doing because they're faster than ever. Um, But I don't know if they're, I think they're having fun, they're excelling, there's more young people out there. It's just incredible, the depth of competition today. But Greg Meyer always says, well, I think we had more fun. Well, that's what Johnny Kelly said to, to, to us, you know. It's all subjective. Yeah, I think it's subjective, and uh, you find what you want in the sport. We all find what we want, you know, and, and, uh, and we're lucky because this is a lifetime sport. It's like golf. You know, you can be good in golf. You can be good in running. You can keep your health. 
and it's got these po- this power. Aside from Galen Rupp, who's run 206, and years ago Ryan Hall yeah, was Ryan running 204-57 here, that incredible year in yes. 2011. I mean, yeah. a lot of the top American males are still running close to what you ran back in the late 70s, early 80s. 209 is still considered a very good time by a male American marathoner. Globally, however, I mean, the world record's down at 201.39. Yeah. I mean, someone runs a 204 to win London, and it's like, eh, like, not a huge deal. How do you... That was a slow race. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, how do you feel about the performances that top athletes are putting up in the marathon now compared yes. to back in your day? The knowledge of training is so much better. Bakila, who took two Olympic golds, ran 212, you know, and I, I, I ran faster than that 10 times, but I don't think I'm a better runner than Bakila was. Just better training, better knowledge, better support, all this, you know, but... Um, How about technology advancements with shoes yeah, and nutrition? Sh- um, I had good shoes. I love my shoes. And I always t- say, you know, if you, if you love your shoes, if you really are comfortable with them, that is huge. Because it is all up here, you know, and that's, I think that's where Kipchoge is. And Galen is the same way. One thing about Alberto, he really believed in this and, and, and trying to get his athletes, and it was an Oregon thing too, that they did with Prefontaine and all their milers. To, to, they called it callousing, gradually making it more and more challenging, your workouts, you know. And, and that's a very tricky thing. I don't think I would have been good at that because I was kind of a wimp runner. You know, I used to swear at my high school coach. <laughs> what do you mean by that when you call yourself a uh, wimp runner? You know, I really wasn't that tough to push myself beyond certain limits. You can run very well in the marathon without going crazy. You really, really, I think, I think it's the track, you know, where the really outrageous workouts are. Maybe it's because I'm more slow twitch and I'm, I like the marathon, but I think in current terms of the times, the runners today have great support. You know, they have great support all over the world. You know, the Americans and the runners from Japan and wherever you live. Um, so the support's better, and that's so key. We need to support our athletes here in the U.S. I'm totally a big believer. And look what happened when Mammoth Lakes came up. Dina Castor came out of, out of that. Um, Meb and Ryan Hall, Sarah Hall. So this is, this is just spinoff. Great, great talents. Yes, Ryan Hall is a phenom, you know, in high school. So is Meb. You know, I remember reading about him. Before I met Meb, I remember reading about him when he was in high school. And I said, who is this guy? You know, he ran like 8.57 in high school. Whoa. You know, so, so they had great coaches. He had the best coaches, you know. So that's a lot of it. We all need a coach. I, I, I believe that. Or someone or a friend who really knew, knows running. So if you can pass on that info, you're a coach, you know? <laughs> we could go all day, but we've got to land this plane here soon. Two more questions before we wrap up. The first one is, how has your relationship to running evolved over the course of your lifetime? You've been at it. I mean, there have been breaks here and there for various reasons, but you've been at it for over 50 years. And you've done it all from being that excited high school kid to being part of a college program, you know, getting back into running so you could quit smoking to being one of the best athletes in the world to the natural process of aging and slowing down and not being as competitive as you once were. I'd love to just (laughs) hear more about it from you directly. Like, how has that relationship with this sport, this lifestyle evolved over the course of your lifetime? You know, I was always with my brother, still a runner, too. He's a year older than me. We're slowed way down, you know. He's 74, I'm 73. 70 was, to me, it's like Star Trek, the final frontier. (laughs) But there's people older. There's people who are 80 years old who run here. I mean, they're tough. Whoa. But I love the exploring we're all explorers, really. You know, that's what we're doing. But, but sometimes it's a little depressing. I don't want to say depressing, but disheartening or frustrating. But on the other hand, I'm so happy I can still be out there. You know, and be out there and on the Charles and see everyone out there running. I'm, I'm glad I'm here. What's disheartening? You know? that, the fact that you're slowing down or that you've slowed down over the yeah, years? Yeah, yeah, I think that and sometimes I have one foot that's really weak. Uh-huh. You know, um, all my years facing the cars, I can't push off good. My left foot and, and um, 
you know, I can't race as good. I want I would, you know, I ran, I ran the DeMar half marathon in New Hampshire two weeks ago. And I met this guy at the starting line, and he was 73, same as me. And, and we started talking, and, and um, he had run with Amy Burfoot um, two years, three years ago. And Amy had a great race there. I thought, I can't run that fast, you know. But so this guy took off. I was running with my partner, Karen. We ran together four miles, and then I started to pick it up. Anyway, I caught this guy. I admit at the start. I caught him at about 12 miles, 12 and a half, 12. We're getting close. And he's walking, and I'm whipped too. I made a poor choice in my shoes, and I just had, I hadn't run that far, 13 miles, you know. And um, I came up to him. Mario and I said, um, I can't. I don't remember his name. I remember it now, but I forgot. Then I just came up to him, put my hand on his shoulder, and I said, "Let's run in," because it's camaraderie too. We duke it out, but we also have camaraderie, you know. So, so I said, "Let's run in together," and he kind of gathered himself and said, "Okay." But um, as we got close to the start, he pulled away from me. <laughs> Playing mind games with you. I, I, and he was literally staggering. He had this kind of ability to really gut it out. I don't. You know, I kind of was pushing and I tried to stay close. But, but I do have an end to the story that's kind of interesting. Well, he started about eight seconds ahead of me. So I beat him by the clock by two seconds. <laughs> <laughs> but the real story is there's another guy who was three minutes ahead of us. That's the way it goes, Mario. Do you still have that same excited explorer mentality now at 73 as you did when you first got into the sport? I do because, you know, I run with my friends. I run with Karen. My partner, Karen, she's a, um, about 64 years old. She, she got into running older, you know, but she's a good runner. She's very solid. And um, we have fun with running, with the sport, you know. Look for the great places, you know, in our neighborhood to run. We run in this reserve where we go to Walden Pond. Yeah. Try to run on the grass, you know. I think that's key. The success of the Kenyans, the Ethiopians, uh, the Mammoth Lakes, you know, run on dirt and grass. Because then your legs get stronger. And I always liked running on grass to a degree. Unless I had to really work hard and it's uneven. Then you've got to watch it, you know. But I still love the sport. And I'll be cheering for them. You know, when I saw Desi come in, that brutal, brutal day and Yuki come in. I had to go outside. I could only stay out there about 10 minutes. How they stayed out there, those athletes were the toughest ones of all. They're, they're the most, I don't know how they did it, you know, mentally. I never would have made it. But, but they had whatever it takes. You know, in the Finns, they call it sisu. We call it heart here in the U.S., you know. And, um, and, 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 and Desi had it, you know, and, and it was off the charts, you know. What a day. <laughs> a brutal day. Kind of tough, sad. Last bit before we wrap this one. Where will you be during the race on Monday? Um, I will be, I, I always love watching the runners come in. I don't even know if they have the, if they have the uh, bleachers, Mario. I, I, don't, I, even, I don't know either. I know, because I've been near there, but I like to watch it. I'll be cheering for them. And um, I have two buddies that are running, you know, and, 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 and you know, I'm the guy that gives their gear to be picked up later and everything, you know. Later we'll have a beer and we'll run together this winter, you know. And, uh, <clears throat> but I, I, I just take my hat off to all of you. Take your time out there. If it's your first Boston, really take your time. You know, don't do what I did because you get caught up in it. it it's like, um, I don't know, there's really no words to describe the Boston Marathon. There's a million words, you know. Well, we'll end it on this. How do you feel now when you're watching the race i mean it's been two plus years since the last time this has happened but what are you experiencing when you're watching the race from wherever it is that you are you know i love all the history of this sport you know and last night i met some of the greeks who are here the greek consul given the the laurels that's incredible i've been to greece i went over there with alberto at 82 and they did a documentary about the marathon, and we went to the plain of Marathon and saw the burial mound where the Greeks fought. I, th- I think, it, I don't know if it was against Sparta or the Persians. It was war, tough stuff. There's an actual burial mound there, and it's unbelievable. We met a Greek historian, 
Alberto didn't like him because he was kind of a socialist. And <laughs> Alberto's very staunch. He's an interesting guy. And, um, but this, this historian was an interesting guy. He said it would not be the modern-day course from 1896, the 26 miles, or, you know. Pheidippides would have come over the hills from the Plain of Marathon, and Alberto and I ran some of that. It would have been about 15 miles. So we're running 10 miles too far. <laughs> it's totally crazy. You know, but there's so much history to our sport, and we're all part of it. And you qualified somewhere, or you're raising money, so you're part of it in this huge way. But, man, you're going to be cheered big time here in Boston. And I hope you come back. You will. If you run it once, you usually come back. <laughs> well, Phil, this has been an honor of a lifetime. Thank you so much for coming on the Morning Shakeout podcast. And thank you all so much for coming out and watching Jack today. Smith. That's it for this special live recording of the Morning Shakeout podcast. A big thank you to both Tracksmith and Gooder for sponsoring this episode of the show. Tracksmith is a Boston-based running apparel brand that really celebrates the culture of the sport that we all love. They make some of the best apparel in the game. I wore their kit at today's Boston Marathon, and I'd love for you to check out some of their offerings at tracksmith.com Mario. And you can use the code Mario15 to save $15 off your first purchase of $75 or more. Gooder sunglasses are just the best. They don't bounce, they don't slip, and they're polarized to protect your eyes. Most pairs come in at 25 to 35 bucks a piece. They've got a wide range of styles and colors, and you can check them out today, including some of my favorite selections at gooder.com Mario, and that will save you 15% off your entire purchase. And remember, your face will thank you. A couple more things before we wrap up. I'd like to give a shout out, as always, to my longtime producer, John Summerford, who makes every episode of the podcast sound clear and amazing. Also, thank you to Jeffrey Stern for running the AM Shakeout social media accounts and Chris Douglas for handling sponsorship sales. Last thing, if you are digging this podcast, I think you will love my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout, and you can subscribe to it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Every Tuesday morning, you'll get my take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to. It's a quick read, 5-10 minutes tops, but it will give you plenty to think about throughout the rest of the week. Again, you can sign up to receive it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. <laughs>